Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studios, it's time for Workplace MVP. Workplace MVP is brought to you by R3 Continuum, a global leader in workplace behavioral health, crisis, and security solutions. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gassman. Hello, everyone. Your host, Jamie Gassman here, and welcome to this edition of Workplace MVP. Work environments are still experiencing residual shifts and turns as they continue to work towards the next normal. Some workplaces are in the process of bringing employees back to the office after a prolonged time working remote. Others are experiencing an increase in workplace violence. And collectively, there is a heightened awareness and responsibility of employee mental health. There's so much that organizational leadership needs to consider and be aware of in today's current work environment. It begs the question, where do you begin with navigating this environment of constant change? And how do you make sure your people remain protected and supported through it all? With us today to help provide answers to those questions and more is Workplace MVP, Dr. George Vergolius, medical, medical director for our show sponsor, R3 Continuum, and chief clinical officer for Telepsych Supports. Welcome to the show, Dr. Vergolius. Thank you, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's just start off with you telling me a little bit about yourself and your career journey. Certainly. And um, my career journey was really a bit haphazard. I, I admire people that have a, a North Star in their career and they pursue that and they they just hit those goals. Mine, I certainly had goals, but other opportunities came up that diverted. Um, I actually went to uh, undergrad at Marquette University for engineering. And about a year into it, um, I took a class called differential equations as well as organic chemistry and it completely kicked my butt. And I decided that is not the route I wanted to go. I then pivoted to philosophy for about a year, uh, Eastern philosophy, and then realized that I won't have a job when I get out of school. And that was a natural extension into psychology, understanding the human brain, what makes people um, think the way they do and act the way they do. Um, And I continued on that trajectory, got into a doctoral program at the Chicago School, and actually had a neuropsych track, neuropsychology, and actually finished. And I did a neuropsychology uh, and an inpatient rotation um, at Duke, and I graduated, and I couldn't find a job. (laughs) Um, And I was a bit frustrated. And an old mentor of mine called and said, hey, would you be interested in doing a postdoc um, at Notre Dame in forensic psychology? And I've taken one class before, but I was interested generally. And I jumped on it, and I fell in love, fell in love with it. And so what happened from there is I began working in the forensic field, both in a private practice setting, consulting with courts, jails, prisons, and working with county mental health systems. And I did that for about 10 years. Um, And in that process, I began consulting with law enforcement and emergency departments around imminent risk, suicide risk, homicide risk, people that were psychotic and paranoid. Um, And that also at one point brought me into the workplace violence sector, because when you're a threat on violence in the community, you also have some expertise in a whole range of violence risks. And so at that point, my career took two trajectories. I started consulting with EAPs and eventually joined R3 Continuum about 10 years ago. And at the same time, my work with emergency departments as an individual ballooned into developing a practice and then a company that staffs emergency departments with doctoral psychologists and forensic psychologists to do imminent risk 
involuntary commitment, and other types of crisis assessments. And, uh, you know, some 20 years later, here I am. So that's a general view of that trajectory. Great. And so through telepsych supports, you within you work within regional emergency departments and hospitals. So tell me, what are some of the common challenges that you have seen surface over this last year? That's a great question because there have been many. So what happened is when COVID hit um, or the pandemic hit and it really started gaining traction in terms of awareness of the seriousness of it, one of the biggest things that hospitals needed to do, and I, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, so we were a little bit fortunate in that New York state was well ahead of the, they, they were the early curve. Um, so we were able to learn for some of the difficulties that Europe and um, New York state encountered. The biggest priority is we need to free up beds. And the way we needed to do that is that we needed to maximize getting every behavioral health patient out the door that was able to get out the door. Um, so unless they were absolutely needing to be in the hospital, we needed to get them out because we needed to free up uh, hospital resources. And that put a lot of pressure on staff in the emergency department, on doctors, on nurses, on the psychologists to um, really tell a very fine line of deciding who stays and who do we think is safe enough to go out into the community. And there were moments in many hospitals and for a short period of time in ours where we had to go to what we almost called battle triage, where there would be, you know, in 2019 or in six months from now, even now, if you came into the hospital and said you were suicidal and you had some pretty severe intent and we believed you, there's no way we would let you leave. There were some windows of time where we simply had nowhere to put you. So unless you came in and you were literally having acted on it or cut yourself or made an attempt to hang yourself or took pills, we couldn't keep you. Um, and in a way, it's analogous to what um, some of the Vegas hospitals dealt with after the Las Vegas uh, mass shooting uh, involving the Mandalay Bay. There were times where normally someone would easily be admitted and, and acted on quickly with a gunshot wound to the leg. That person became a third priority relative to all the other injuries. So in a behavioral health way, we had to do that. We had to get into some of that um, very tough decision-making. The other thing that happened is the community safety net for behavioral health. And what I mean by that is um, public sector clinics that take Medicare and Medicaid, um, nonprofit organizations, both practices and clinics, and even partial hospitalization programs, and even individual private practices that were seeing patients that were on the verge of breakdown. All of that markedly slowed down with COVID. People weren't going into the office. We were all um, pivoting to telemental health, which for many was helpful, but that's not helpful for the person that's having rapid manic episodes every other day. Going to their apartment, engaging them in person, talking them down is a critical component. And when that was all taken away in the early stages of the pandemic, that means that safety net eroded and more and more of those people were starting to come into the emergency departments because they were decompensating and they didn't have anywhere else to go. So those were the big things that kind of created a pressure vacuum in those settings. So what kind of impact had, did that have on the staff and, you know, has it lingered as we've, you know, as you've come into 2021? Yeah. I mean, it had a massive impact in that you had, well, there was two, it was like a, it was like a twofold punch. On the one hand, you had medical staff in particular just dealing with COVID. 
Um, and when you're talking particularly about emergency department nurses and, um, and techs and physicians, that's difficult because they live in the space where they save lives. That's what they do for a living. They don't necessarily bring somebody fully to recovery, but their goal is to stabilize the life, save it, and then move it upstairs to one of the other units. And when COVID hit and they were overrun, And there were people literally sleeping in cots in the hallways and in some hospitals sleeping on the floor and in the hallways and putting people on ventilators. They reached a limit of what their medical expertise could do. And all you had to do is wait and see, is their body able to fight through with the help of the ventilator in many cases and make it through. So there was what I, what I found is a bit anecdotal, but what I found is there was a great deal of learned helplessness in emergency department staff, both nursing and physicians, um, because they're used to working in a high stress environment, but with a great deal of control and a great deal of ability within, within the limits of medical science and practice to save people. But COVID changed that. I mean, there were, there were a lot of times where it's, we've done what we can do. Now we just got to wait for this person's body to make it through the fight or not make it through the fight. So that was one thing that hit, um, On top of that, what we saw is that influx of uh, severe and persistent mentally ill people coming to the emergency department, which added um, another layer of difficulty and it increased hostile interactions because you had patients. And I want to be clear, um, in general, people with mental illness are not more violent than the rest of the community, but people with severe and persistent mental illness who have command hallucinations who have paranoia, who have been living on the street, who have comorbid substance abuse disorders, they do have a tendency to be more violent, particularly amidst modes of crisis. And so what we saw is a spike in those individuals coming in and being agitated, being hostile. Um, In fact, what we saw, there was a recent study um, of nurses, and they reported a 20% increase of physical violence against them during the pandemic. And this is with a group that was already at high risk for exposure to physical and verbal violence. So those were some of the big things that we saw that was really um, tough to deal with if, when you're working in those environments. So, and looking at the different organizational levels within a hospital, you, know, you have doctors, nurses, maybe nurse managers, and there's obviously the admi- administration level. There's this variance in how they handle and respond to certain things like compassion, fatigue, burnout, or is there a variance in how they respond to those different areas? Because I can imagine after, you know, this full year of all the kind of, you know, the emotional roller coaster that healthcare staff has been on, you know, is there a variance in how they, they're navigating compassion, fatigue, burnout, stress, and overall PTSD? I would, I would say there is, I think some of the research supports this as well, but certainly in my 20 years of experience in those settings, and what I've noticed, and again, I'm speaking in generalities here um, because we're talking in the aggregate. Um, but what we have seen is when, you know, for those staff that work on um, the floors, internal medicine, post-surgery, cardiac, um, there's a lot of stressors there, right? Um, they see death, they see suffering, they see grief. For me, one of the toughest floors would be the the NICU, right? The, the, the neonatal or um, intensive care units. Um, but there is a certain amount of stability in those environments. People are admitted, they're treated, the course of treatment is worked on, and then they're discharged. The rapid turnaround you see in the ED, the function of an ED is to get somebody in, stabilize them, and move them out because they need the next bed, right? 
move them up to the floor or move them back into the community. And so when COVID hit and people could not easily be moved because there was nowhere to, nowhere to move them to, right? On top of the fact that hospitals had to do their own self-quarantine. Um, the ED was never um, a fully quarantined location. Many hospitals put up tents in the parking lot where they would screen people. But moving someone from the ED up to a floor that was COVID safe or deemed you know, not um, at risk, that was a big decision. So there were often times when people just couldn't be moved. And that was really tough for ED staff. And so that rapid turnaround, I think, really impacted ED staff in a way, because that's what they're used to, that was a little less impactful. I'm not saying not impactful, but less impactful for people that were working on floors. Um, um, That doesn't mean there weren't stressors, because one of the things of people working on floors is they tended to see a lot of death. Um, related to COVID, especially at high volume hospitals um, during the pandemic. The other thing I find is these roles are self-selective. You know, if I was a counselor that worked with, um, oh, I'm a therapist doing marital therapy, which by the way, to me is very difficult. <laughs> I used to do consulting with divorce divorce attorneys and I quit after like two years because that was, that was worse than all the forensic work I'd done. Um, it's just tough, some of those um, situations um, and how ugly uh, people can be. What's interesting, though, is these roles are self-selective. People pick emergency medicine, forensic psychology, crisis, you know, emergency nursing, because they have a drive. They have, to me, it's almost a certain adrenaline. It's a certain interest. Um, I, I actually think there's a predisposition to ADHD because that attention span of moving from one patient to the next to the next is very well suited. Um, and these are the same people that to me are very much like sharks. And I, and I kind of fit this category. We just don't slow down. We're always looking for the next challenge. And the problem with not slowing down is it's hard to take emotional inventory to how am I doing? How am I coping? Let me do an emotional check-in. Um, and I think that's difficult. Again, I'm not saying that other physicians or nurses don't experience that, but they select other, um, other areas of expertise that doesn't demand that kind of mindset. And so when you enter kind of that heightened battle zone, if you will, um, it's very hard for emergency physicians, EMS, um, other types of doctors and nurses in that setting to slow down and do a self check-in um, because there really is a sense of, I don't have time for this. Somebody's coding in the next bay. I got to get over there. Um, and when I go home after a 12 or 16 or 20 hour shift, I just want to eat a quick meal and go to sleep or watch Netflix for an hour and hug my kids. I don't have time to emotionally process. So that is something I've noticed that was always there in medicine and psychology, but exacerbated by those stressors I already talked about that impact, particularly that point, what I call the point of the spear, that emergency department setting. Interesting. And you shared when we talked before um, the show about a scenario that kind of demonstrates that in a way, you know, with an active shooter training drill that you did at a hospital in terms of how the different, you know, maybe roles within the organization responded to that, that scenario. Can you share a little bit about that? Cause it was just so interesting to, to really kind of have a demonstration of how their thinking is very much, you know, in a reactive and just kind of staying in kind of that mode versus that's, you know, protecting themselves or taking care of themselves. Can you share a little bit about that scenario? 
Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, and this was fascinating for me as well, because I didn't expect it. I was, I was at least 15 years into my career as a forensic psychologist. And this, this really surprised me, which was, was a pleasant surprise, but very interesting. So what we did is we did a full simulation active shooter exercise for a hospital setting. Um, this was about five, six years ago. And we were fortunate in that the hospital had just built a new wing that was finished, but they had not moved in yet. So we were able to run this simulation in a full hospital environment. And we had law enforcement involved. They were using blanks. Um, we did a, we did a, po- a pre-briefing and a debriefing with all the staff. We had a number of actors acting like assailants, and we had a few other actors acting as um, victims. And then we had the hospital staff in their normal roles. So we had a small section of internal medicine, a small section of uh, OBGYN, you know, delivering births. And then certainly we had an emergency department section and a few other um, makeshift units. And what was fascinating is once the exercise took off, oh, by the way, and everyone was educated on the general protocol of the hospital, which was pull people into a room, barricade the room, and then treat them as best you can, um, or just or just barricade, right? Run, hide, fight, run if you can, hide if you can. Um, we really didn't talk much about fight for this particular organization. And what happened as we came through, or the people came through, the uh, the assailants, is um, we found on all the medical units, that's exactly what they did. They pulled people in, they barricaded rooms, they hid. And even if there were victims out in the hallway, they would try to triage them until the assailants came nearby, and then they would go hide, as they were directed to do. What's interesting is what we found in the emergency department is those staff never hid. They stayed triaging people out in the open in harm's way. Now, I'm not judging one physician or nurse against another. What, 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 and no one did, right? It wasn't a judgment call. Because the truth is, is if you are able to hide, you're actually probably saving more lives because you know, there, there's, there's, there's some evidence to show that the more a, uh, an assailant can find victims, the more they're going to keep looking as opposed to turning the gun finally on themselves or exiting. Um, so there is some real logic to run, then hide, then fight. But what's interesting is what we simply found was the emergency personnel, it just wasn't in their DNA. It just wasn't in their DNA to let somebody lie there and not try to treat them. And so what that did is it allowed the hospital to have insights that we, you know, it's like you can't teach a dog to meow and you can't teach a cat to bark. So what they actually did is they had slightly different protocols and they actually rearranged some of the design of the emergency department unit that allowed them to shut down corridors in a way that you can still triage people out in the hallway, but you could actually shut down the corridor so an assailant can't get through with barricaded kind of moving moving walls and sh- shut down doors. But it was a really interesting insight that allowed us um, to, to get a better understanding of the behavioral side of how people respond. And that's exactly why we go through these exercises, um, especially live simulations. So it really was interesting. Yeah. What an interesting learning just to see how, you know, the variance in your staff is thinking and reacting. I'm sure military probably has similar you know, when you talk about medals of valor and all of those where somebody has stepped in to, to help their fellow soldier, you know, even though there's, you know, active, you know, bullets or anything coming at them. So very Absolutely. interesting. So in talking like workplace violence in the hospital setting, you know, how, do you think that it has changed, you know, what increased or has it shown up in different ways over this last year? 
or is it about the same, but maybe it just increased? You know, what are your thoughts on that? I think it has increased. In fact, again, I mentioned that one study, 20% of nurses reported an increase in physical violence during the pandemic. And again, this was an already at risk workplace group, significantly at risk. Um, In fact, what's interesting, nursing is one of the most, I saw another study from Forbes, I think about two or three years ago, nursing is one of the most admired um, professions. And it's also one of the single biggest risk of workplace violence professions. Um, What I think based on some of the factors we've already discussed is that yes, workplace violence risk has increased. Um, I think it's increased across the board in healthcare settings, but in particular at that tip of the spear, at that emergency department, EMS, first contact kind of uh, role. Um, I I think we've clearly seen an uptick. And most of that violence, um, and it might be helpful for me to go into just a couple of minutes describing this, is what we call affective or reactive violence. So a little quick primer on that. What we know from studies that go back now almost 80 years is that there's basically two biological modes or physiobiological modes of violence in the human brain. And sadly, we know this because we used to study cats 90 years ago. They put electrodes inside cats and they exposed them to different scenarios. And what they found is a cornered cat versus a cat who's stalking maybe a bird in the backyard. They have very different neurochemical and neuroanatomical processes in the brain. The cornered cat, of course, is in a fight or flight environment. They're hissing, their claws are out, they're showing their teeth, their back is arched. And if you went to pick up a cornered cat, you're probably going to get scratched or bit. And I don't, I would not recommend that, right? A cat that's stalking is the opposite. It's very subdued. It's very focused. Its claws and its teeth are not out because it's not ready to pounce yet. It's, It's in a very covert mode. And what's interesting is you could pick up a stalking cat And you could walk five feet before the cat even realizes it's been picked up because it's locked on that prey. Well, they have since studied that in humans. And what they have found is very similar correlates. So effective reactive violence is emotional. It's reactive. It's often spurned on by substance abuse or intoxication. Uh, Most violence is effective. It's emotional. It's relationship-based. It's crimes of passion or, or, or violence of passion. And then, of course, you do have predatory violence, which is your mass shooter, right? Cold, calculated. When you hear about cases, just like San Jose recently, Columbine, the Vegas shooter, these people aren't agitated. They're not, they're not worked up emotionally. They're cold and calculated. What's interesting is we've seen a market uptick in emotional, reactive, or affective violence in workplace. People are coming in more agitated, more hostile uh, from a mental health perspective. They're more decompensated. And just average normative people that don't have mental illness are frustrated because they're waiting much longer than they ever used to. And they're waiting because of conditions that a year prior, they would have been seen within 30 minutes or less. And now they're waiting six hours. And so just people's, and on top of it, they're stressed about, about the pandemic. Just now we're starting to reclaim our lives. Things are opening up. People are going out to dinner. Um, there's a little uptick in people returning back to work. So hopefully that emotionality will be alleviated a bit. Um, but certainly up until a month or two ago, that was all heightened by all of those factors. That's a great question. 
Interesting. So looking at those factors, looking at the increase in workplace violence, obviously you've heard from other conversations, you know, burnout and mental health concerns within that hospital um, industry. What are some of the um, suggestions that you have for a hospital administration and helping their people to continue with remaining resilient and start to thrive again? Yeah. Um, one of the key things is I think it's important to be aware of the problem. It starts with awareness, right? Um, I think another key issue is communicate clearly with um, with teams around what is the administration's perspective of the problem, understanding of the problem, and what are they doing? And, and it's important for leaders to be, I say this a lot in trainings and webinars, it's important for leaders to know that employees and other stakeholders don't expect us to all have the answers or to have all the answers. Um, people are really gracious to knowing no one alive has been through this before, or if they were alive, they're a hundred and some years old and they don't remember it. Um, certainly they weren't leaders in any organization, but what is important is that we are asking the right questions and we're conveying to our stakeholders and our employees that we're asking the right questions and we're trying to get the right answers. Um, so I think that's important as well. Understand back to my active shooter exercise example, understand that um, different groups within your organization may respond differently to different stress points, right? Um, if you go to the neonatal wellness group, right? Or in some cases, the post operative group or the post cardiac group, right? Or the recovery group. And you talk about meditation and well-being and the importance of eating well and um, massage, that's probably going to hit home. You talk about that to a group of hardened emergency department physicians, good luck, right? Now, I'm not saying that physicians aren't going to meditate in the ED or, or, you know, who work in the ED, but this is more of a hardened group. So you need your, your metaphors, your images of growth, to be different. Um, um, almost to me, what has worked well is I use the analogy of them being athletes, right? As an emergency physician, most of them would understand that Tiger Woods or Serena Williams or Lionel Messi, they don't get a massage for well-being. They get a massage so they can perform at their peak. Physicians get those metaphors um, in that in those settings. And so it's important to understand what is going to work for these different groups in terms of getting buy-in to the to the programs and the resources that they're trying to uh trying to promote. So those are, I would say off the top of my head, those are the big things that are uh that are important to keep in mind. Great. Great. So right now we're going to get a word from our sponsor. So Workplace MVP is sponsored by R3 Continuum. R3 Continuum is a global leader in providing expert, reliable, responsive, and tailored behavioral health crisis and security solutions to promote workplace well-being and performance in the face of an ever-changing and often unpredictable world. Learn more about how R3 Continuum can tailor a solution for your organization's unique challenges by visiting www.r3c.com today. So now we've we've been discussing the healthcare industry and the work environment within that quite a bit um, in the first half of the show. So I'm just curious, are there other industry work environments seeing some of the same challenges that the hospital section uh, hospital industry has been seeing? Yeah, certainly. Now they have different pain points from what we've been talking about, but certainly they're seeing increased 
pressures to perform, um, reduced resources, um, and other kind of exacerbating um, things, stressors going on. A few is, is the trucking industry has been significantly impacted in terms of, I mean, we all, is if Amazon, right, and other shipping, uh, you know, wasn't big enough, we all went to that in a massive way. And for many of us, we're not going backwards. Um, I was a big fan of going into grocery stores before the pandemic. I like to walk around. I like to pick my produce. Once we started using Instacart, which is, is not exactly trucking, right? But once we started moving to using Instacart, we don't, we're just, now we're stuck. Now we're, it's not, we're stuck. We have a habit now and it's convenient. And now we use Instacart to deliver our groceries. Um, I still will go in and pick certain things out if we're having a big event. Um, but so there's been a behavioral shift where we're trucking um, and shipping um, um, delivery services, again, like Amazon, FedEx, um, you know, UPS, they've been significantly impacted. Um, um, rail yards, again, we saw shooting at the San Jose rail yard. And there's a lot of indication that this individual, um, the assailant, had long-standing anger and resentment and felt untreated fairly and whatnot. But to me, there's no doubt that the pandemic and the additional stressors that were probably on those staff, it further exacerbated him to a tipping point. Now, I'm not blaming, I'm not blaming the workplace. I want to be clear here. But in that zeitgeist of stressors, those are the kind of things that move people from a pre-contemplative stage to a stage of maybe I can do this to a stage of, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take a severe action like this. Um, manufacturing um, is another one. Um, a lot of pressure um, in that environment. Um, first responders, police, EMS, um, even firefighters, all of these are situations that have increased stress. Um, so I think all of those are kind of heightened industries off the top of my head. But what we're, I think we're going to see as well is return to work is going to also heighten that for many people who are just going back to the workplace and have various questions around safety um, related to the, you know, to COVID or second variants and so on. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, and then looking at those various environments, you know, and the organizational leadership trying to support the people within it, does it, are there similar recommendations you would make for them that you did for the hospital industry or, does it change based on that industry? Yeah, great question. I, I I would say they are similar recommendations. I remember an old, um, I can't remember the movie. It was a movie where Nick Nolte was a basketball coach and he was um, kind of a Bobby Knight type style, right? Yelling at his players. And he basically said at halftime that he's going to take their plan for the second half and he's going to give it to the other team because it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And I love, I always, well, I, you know, the movie was interesting, but I always love that statement because in this case, what I've already said are the things that I would recommend. So what you do are going to be pretty similar. Start with those high points that I, we've talked about, but the way in which you do it, you've got to cater the messaging to your culture and to your people. Um, and that's going to be very different for a trucking company as opposed to a yoga studio, right? As opposed to an Amazon warehouse um, or some other location. Um, so it's important as leaders to know what is the kind of the culture that we're working with and what is the messaging and the resources that are going to hit home to that culture. Great. So with workplaces that have employees who have been in a remote environment, 
that are now returning to the workplace, do you feel there will be an increase in these challenges that they need to consider? I do. I do. Now, I'm not sure there will be an uptick in violence from the perspective of an average workplace, but I think there will be an uptick in emotionality. And with that comes an uptick in hostility. Hopefully, a lot of that will be on the verbal side and will be able to be mitigated fairly quickly with good leadership. Some may, though, trip over into violence. But I think what we're going to see is a lot of people still have anxiety around return to work. Is it safe? Um, the variants that we're seeing in other countries, um, such as India or other areas, um, certainly eventually those will get here. They're starting to get here. How's that going to impact us? How good are the current vaccines going to be? Um, what's the what's the workplace's policy on allowing non-vaccinated people to come back into the workplace? Um, interestingly enough, my 13-year-old just got her first shot for vaccination. My 11-year-old isn't eligible. So it's interesting. My wife is working at a hotel she has some concern that she's probably, she's vaccinated. She's probably very limited risk for getting sick. What if she brings it back to my son who can't be vaccinated yet? Cause that hasn't rolled out for the under 12 or 13 year olds. Um, these are all going to be concerns that different people will have to different degrees. And they'll be exacerbated by the way different workplaces are laid out, right? Are you all going back to individual offices or are you all going back to cubicles? Um, or open floor planning, right? Type workplaces. So these are things that I think leaders have to be very proactive about and on top of ahead of time. Um, And again, the goal isn't to have all the answers, but to convey we're asking the right questions and we're open to your questions as as employees. And we're going to work with you to find the right solutions that help you feel safe and secure. Um, um, So I think we're going to, I think that would be kind of the biggest, the single biggest concern for us as we return to work. Great. And if there were three things, so thinking about <clears throat> over some of the things you've discussed today, and then just things that, you know, from your expertise and trainings, if you were going to be consulting with an employer, if there were three things that you wanted our listeners to be aware of and take away from this episode for how they should be supporting their work environment with these challenges, what would they be? I'm going to answer this at a high level because we talked about some details. And I think sometimes the high level can be useful. Um, the first is, Awareness and um, understanding are key. I mean, we've all, not many of us probably have heard the saying, everyone's fighting a battle, you know, you know nothing about. Um, I think it's important to understand that even the people that look strongest in our workforces may be struggling with things that they're adjusting to, Um, whether it's homeschooling, nervous about acclimating, Maybe they feel safe coming back to work, but they have a spouse that has an entirely different workplace scenario and they're freaking out about it, understandably. So that's the first. The other is a saying I heard that I love, and that is you don't drown by falling in the river. You drown by staying submerged under the water. And I love that saying because I use it to say um, leadership needs to model strength through vulnerability. As leaders, if all we ever do is, is act strong and put a strong face up, we give two messages to our constituents, to our stakeholders, and to our employees. One is, it's not okay to not be okay. And that's not a good message. Oh, And two is, we don't model for them the ability to say, you might fall down, but you have the ability to get back up. And when you get back up, you're going to be stronger, right? So yeah, things are tough, but you're getting tougher. 
right? So that's another key message that I think it's important. Now, that doesn't mean leaders need to be crying on a town hall meeting for an hour, okay? But the ability to be a little vulnerable and demonstrate that as a leader, I can show vulnerability and I can still tap into my resilience, that is a very powerful message for um, for employees to have. And then I, I would say the third is communication. I, I mentioned this before, but communicating to them often proactively, um, frequently, and bi-directionally. Don't just communicate to them, but have a channel by which employees can communicate back and share what is working, what isn't working, what concerns and anxieties do they have, and then respond quickly uh, back to them on those. And again, with the idea that we may not have all the answers, but we're asking the right questions and we're open to them bringing the right questions to the table. So those are the three things that I would say at a pretty high level um, really are going to drive effective leadership as we return to work. Great. So now back to, to, to you looking over your career, you know, if you were going to pick one thing that you're most proud of, what would that be? Uh, that's tough. Um, it's tough for two reasons. Cause I'm, I'm proud of a lot of things, but again, back to that shark analogy, I don't dwell on what I've accomplished. I finish it and I go like, what's my next challenge? Um, and this is going to sound self-serving, but, um, my tenure with R3, you know, when we started, we were helping 800, 900, we were doing 800, 900 crisis responses a month. We are now responding to 2,000 plus crises a month um, in the workplace uh, across a range of industries and a range of problems. And each of those isn't just an individual contact. That's a life you're helping. You're contacting. You're you're helping make better. You're helping make more resilient, who then makes their coworkers and their children and their spouses and their neighbors more resilient. And when you do the math, we have helped millions and millions of lives deepen their sense of resilience in the world. And that is a force multiplier that is absolutely amazing. So I would say it's that work that we do at R3 every day, every month, week in, week out. That probably is um, what I'm most proud of. Being at the being at the clinical helm, if you will, of that um, is amazing. Great. And if our listeners wanted to get a hold of you, how can they do that? So the best way to contact me is um, through probably email at my R3, and that is George, um, G-E-O-R-G-E dot Virgolius, V as in Victor, E-R-G-O-L-I-A-S as in Sam, at R, capital R, the number three, C as in cat or Charlie dot com um, would be the best way to reach me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today, Dr. Vergolius, and for letting us celebrate you, for sharing your stories and the wonderful advice that you have provided to our listeners. And I, there's no doubt that they, they were able to get something from, from your information and expertise today. Uh, we appreciate you and I'm sure your organizations and staff that you work with do as well. And we also want to thank our show sponsor, R3 Continuum, for supporting the Workplace MVP podcast. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have not already done so, make sure to subscribe so you get our most recent episodes and other resources. You can also follow our show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Workplace MVP. If you are a Workplace MVP or know someone who is, we want to know. Email us at info at workplace-mvp.com. And thank you all for joining us. 
and have a great rest of your day.